Hi, this is Rob from the Editing Suite. Just to let you know that this Praxis chat you're about to listen to is taking the place of our normal episode, which normally comes out on the Thursday. That's because we always record on the Tuesday evening, which is going to be baking hot tomorrow. And quite frankly, at that level of heat madness, nobody in this podcast is capable of recording a damn sensible thing. So please accept this as your weekly episode, and we will be back on schedule next week's Thursday with more random stuff, and we'll see what happens. In the meantime, please do enjoy and up the workers. Bye. Hello and welcome to the second ever Praxis Chat. It's been slightly under a year since we've done one, but this is still an ongoing concern. And today we're very happy to be joined by Hannah Webb, and we want to be talking about the strike ongoing in the criminal defense barrister section of the workforce, let's call it that way. Hannah is a practicing criminal defense barrister. She's the co-chair of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers, as well as a member of the Legal Sector Workers United. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to get sort of a, a feeling for the strike. So we're, I think we're in week three of it now. How are you feeling? Is it positive? How is it? How do you think it's going? Um, I'm feeling really positive about it. And generally, I, I get that sense from other people as well, that they're feeling positive. It's a profession that has suffered for a long time. Um, and for a long time, people have done their best to kind of hold it together and this strike comes at really the last possible point that it can come really if it goes on much longer with if it went on with much much longer without people striking there'd be even fewer and fewer people left in the profession yeah. to, to maintain it so it, it really has reached breaking point and, and because mm -hmm. of that people i think are pretty buoyed and pretty up for the fight however long it's going to take i think breaking point is pretty common for a lot of sectors at the moment but i think mm. for 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 our listeners we have some i know we have some in the us as well um and for those of us who are fortunate or unfortunate enough to not be familiar with the uk criminal court system can you give us a little bit of the basics of, of your work and maybe sort of what you get up to on, on an average day just so they have a bit of an idea yes so i'm a a barrister and, and that's different from a solicitor because solicitors do the what's called litigation so they organize the case and do the paperwork and, and do a lot of the preparation work. My job practically as, as, a, as a barrister, as the advocate, is attending court and dealing with matters there. Now, in practice, it tends to be a lot broader than that. Um, it's part of my work to do a lot of written work, to advise about aspects of the case. And I tend to be involved really from the very start quite a lot. A general day-to-day -day for the most junior end, um, and, and strangely, a junior barrister is not necessarily someone who's just started out. A junior barrister is really anyone who isn't one of the most senior barristers. So a senior barrister is, is a silk, they're appointed, they're called a Queen's Council. Most people don't become one, people are rarely one without having done that work for 20 years. So forgive me when I say things like junior, junior, because that's what people are referred to. So okay, a junior, junior barrister tends to be in and out uh, of the Crown Court covering a number of cases most days. And I'll get to the people on who, who I may call the junior, junior, junior barristers, um, <laughs> if I'll call them the most junior barristers in a second. <laughs> but after 
a few years into the profession, you'll mostly be doing Crown Court work. So Crown Courts are the cases that deal with the more serious crimes where you get a trial by a jury. This is as opposed to magistrate court, which is sort of the lower level end stuff. That's like, I don't know, shoplifting kind of stuff. Just to Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So magistrate's court work will be shoplifting, drug possession. Um, and there's a lot to say about the magistrate's court. And in fact, the magistrate's court work tends to be the absolute worst funded. We can talk, come on to that in a bit. But this strike is about the Crown Court legal aid. I think and I hope there'll be some movement on funding in the magistrates court but right now this dispute is about is about the crown court work so only barristers or <clears throat> solicitors who are called uh, who are particularly qualified higher court advocates can practice in the crown court barristers are people who you'll see in television dramas with the wig and the gown in the crown court um and, and people might have seen them or people me and others dress like that in various press photo shoots in the Monday protest that we're doing over the last three weeks. Is the, the work that the, the lawyers that are currently on strike, this is all barristers or this is specifically the ones related to, is defendants the right word? Yeah, yeah, defendants is the right word. So the barristers who are currently on strike are criminal barristers. <clears throat> so barristers cover all areas of law. Mostly people specialise. Increasingly, criminal barristers will do more than just crime. Um, because to fund yourself. But it's only criminal barristers who are on strike. Now, most barristers both prosecute and defend. And this is a system that's quite different from the States or or, or perhaps some other places, because everyone is, or a lot of people are independent advocates. You're self-employed. You have sort of associations called chambers, which is you're all part of a group and you work from the same building, or you have the same people who help organize your diary and liaise with like book your work in but ultimately you're on independence yeah i was going to say that I, i've when i was doing sort of some research in this i found that very surprising that every barrister is essentially their own mini corporation that the ch- i always assumed that the chambers were sort of the legal entity and everybody was just an, an employee of one much like a you know law firm has just lawyers working for it but that's that's not the case way the way it's actually structured in chambers is once you become a member of a chambers and there's a sort of process to do that in training, which is its own separate, terrifying conversation. Um, but once you're a member of a chambers, you're a voting member of the organization. There's often a head of chambers, but you different, it's run by different committees and the staff that work there who are called the clerks or in some chambers are called the practice managers who book in your work, um, and really any staff who works there, whether it's people cleaning, um, receptionist, they are employed by, at least in my chambers, by the employment committee. And that employment committee is made up of different members of chambers. So you are lots of self-employed people who are kind of holding this organization together. You're, you're, you're pooling resources essentially for researchers, secretaries, cleaners yeah exactly sort of the overall so everybody can function although i don't know of anyone uh, any criminal barrister who 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 gets to have a researcher maybe maybe some do each is independent and most people uh, prosecute and defend so the crown prosecution service do exactly that they they prosecute on behalf of the state they're not the only prosecutor but they're the main prosecutor and most people will do a bit of work for them and do a bit of work 
for, for clients, but via solicitors. So the clients tend to be to the solicitors and then the solicitor instructs the barrister. Most people do a bit more of one, a bit more than the other. I only defend. For the last couple of years, the legal profession and sort of the whole system of justice in the UK has been underfunded, to put it mildly. I was wondering if you can talk a bit a bit how, is, how that has been for you in the, to work in this really constrained financial environment. The decrease in funding since 2006 has been a real drop of, I think, 28%. Um, there's almost never been an increase, and, and it certainly is there's been decreases. In terms of what that means for me, I've not been practicing a great number of years. So I've managed to not see a real-term decline because I'm so early in my career that I've gone from earning very, very little to, to kind of earning a bit more than that. I think for people who've been doing this for longer, they really have seen it kind of not just plateau, but but decrease. But what that means in practice, the lack of funding, is really like a, a staffing crisis. Because why or why would most people stay and do this work when it's relentless and pays like crap? Speaking to a colleague who does half crime, half family, she was earning 10 times more doing family law, legally aided family law, than, than she was doing criminal law. There's no reason other than wanting to do it to stay. It's, it's completely financially unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about the junior, the new juniors, as I think we this term we settled on. And I was reading a bit up on it that they can earn as low as £9,000 a year after their costs are taken out. So, as you say, why would any young law graduate choose this path when the rewards are so low and the, and the pressures is so high? Because I want to talk about caseload in, in a moment. The balance of caseloads and money and lack of practitioners really all works together because... I suppose a typical day of a barrister, in fact, you're either covering lots of cases for other people, certainly until recently, or you probably have a trial on that week. And a lot of people do back-to-back trials or almost back-to-back trials. And what that means is, you know, in the Crown Court, you get to court probably 8, eight o'clock, 8.30. Uh, you go to speak to your client who might be in custody, who might be on bail. So they might be down in the cells and you've got to go through and do everything to speak to them. Trial will start, well, it never really starts at 10 o'clock, but it's meant to start at 10 o'clock because there's other matters the court has to deal with. You might have legal arguments. You might have all kinds of things. And you have a day of trial. That goes on till 4, 4.30. And after that, you don't get to go home and, and relax. Or you might get to go home, but you certainly don't get to go, get to relax because you've got other cases and, and admin to keep on top of with those, all these advices to, to write things. Trial preparation for the next day. You've got to prepare all your cross-examination or examination of your witnesses. Uh, any legal arguments take up a ton of time and they always arise. And you always get told by the judge, oh, you know, we'll have this discussion about this tomorrow or you don't. And you've got to prepare that. So often people are working, you know, there's the trial day, and there's been a push from the government for a long time to extend that trial day um, to make courts more efficient. But outside that, you are working hours before getting to court and many hours after getting to court just on that case alone. All these hours you work during the day and then into the evening, can you, 
how does it work in terms of payment? Because if you're if you're a criminal barrister and, and you're called in in terms of legal aid, so this is you're working for people who don't have private resources to, to pay for counsel privately, you get paid through the government. How does that work? Because the numbers I saw were incredibly low for how many hours that, that you put in. Yeah, so all cases are billed differently. Um, when you're in a trial, you get paid a daily rate for that. Um, it, it depends, but it, it starts off around £400 a day, which is better than most jobs. It's not an hourly rate, and very rarely do you see anything like an hourly rate. But there's a lot of cases where, you know, I'm, I've been a barrister for two and a half years, um, depending on where you start counting from. And when I do a trial in the Crown Court, that's what I get. But someone 10 years more senior than me, guess what they get? Exactly the same. Um, and, and they, kind of fair enough, want to see some sort of progression given they're more senior. And, and it, it really does plateau. But there's some cases that just pay even worse. So there's different points at which a case ends where the funding's different. Just by way of context, all cases have to begin in the magistrate's court. So whether it's murder or, or shoplifting, they start, the first hearing is in the magistrate's court. Generally, if it's a serious crime, just administrative, say your name, just identify you and send you along to the Crown Court. If someone pleads not guilty in the magistrate's court, and then they plead guilty in the Crown Court, all you get as their barrister is what's called a guilty plea fee. To start with, that's £365 plus VAT. Now, if it's complicated and it goes on, so if you've got to, for example, investigate fitness to plead, see if your client uh, is fit to plead. So for that, you've got to write an advice uh, to instruct a psychiatrist. That takes doesn't come in time. So you've got to go back to the court for your hearing, say, sorry, we didn't get it. We need more time. The judge gives you a bollocking and you go back to court the next time. Eventually you get your report. They've misunderstood your instructions entirely. So you have to write a new advice and, and, and wait for that. And that can go on. I've had one where that went on for six, seven hearings. Really vulnerable client, you know, needed all the help he could get. And I wrote two advices. I wrote one sentencing note after he pleaded for one reason. Once the court just adjourned it because they didn't have enough time. They just said, well, you're all here, but we don't have time to sentence him. So we'll do it another day. There were seven hearings. All of those are included in the guilty plea fee. Seven different occasions attending court, 20 hours writing yeah. advices and at the end of it 365 pounds for all of that work altogether yeah. your your hourly wage comes down to a pound an hour or something at some point which which yeah. creates a sort of weirdly perverse incentive for barristers to just get more guilty pleas quickly through the door simply that, so they can maintain a standard of living at whatever level that is yeah i think i'm not saying they do i'm, I'm not implying this but it it, it creates that motion it it definitely does, um, but that has always been the context. So there's always been an incentive to, in fact, kind of drag it out past the first hearing at the Crown Court, for example, and then plead because then the, then the fee goes higher. That's always a conflicting incentive, and it's something that government, I think about three, six months ago, pointed at solicitors about, saying, oh, these solicitors are... Um, dragging things out to get a higher fee and then get them to plead. It is a perverse incentive to kind of certainly put less work in because if you're only getting paid a certain fee, 
it's not that people are incentivized, I think, in, in reality to put less work in. It's just that there's so much going on that you aren't incentivized. Perhaps you shouldn't be incentivized to put as much work in as possible, but there's no incentive to keep going on it. There's, in fact, it's realistically, it's not possible. It's a disincentive. It's just that, that vacuum of like actual point to it, if you know what I mean. If you're looking at it from a really cynical point of view, then it makes total sense why people would just consider, well, I can just get these cases through and through and through because you don't have the stability of an hourly rate or a, a set salary or anything like that. It's, it's really relying on the integrity of people and like any other job or profession, like, that wouldn't be taken as something just red and normal. Yeah, I think I've rarely come across people who I think are tempted by that incentive. It means you've got to be in a certain financial position to be able to do this work. Yeah. It means you either got to be doing other kinds of work to keep you afloat or be able to support yourself to, to treat it as a hobby and or not yeah. have, you know, any kind of dependent or, or plans for them. It'd be perfectly fair to call it a really insecure form of work in a way. Yeah. I think I think it is a really insecure form of work. I wanted to talk about, because uh, we mentioned it before, that the government cuts since, I think you said it was 2006, that they've cut about 30% or something of the of the budget f- for this kind of work. Was there any reason given? Is it just, oh, we must be more efficient? Or is it sort of the natural presupposition sometimes in politics of guilty people, you know, if you're guilty, you need a lawyer, and most people aren't guilty, so they don't need lawyers? And it was, I suppose, the sort of generalized austerity drives of, of the 2010s, but... What was the reason given that they could just cut? I mean, 25, 30% is, is very significant. There's a lot of rhetoric around these fat cat legal aid lawyers. And I think it probably was the case that a lot of people were earning, well, some people were earning decent money 30 years ago. The you know, journalists, like, it's a good story to be able to point to someone and say, this guy is defending, you know, like a horrible, horrible criminal. And guess what? He's getting rich off it. You know, he's basically a criminal himself. Politicians find it really easy to, to, you know, if you want to be tough on crime and you you want the guilty to suffer, then who's going to care about people trying to stop them from going to prison? You know, like, that's why. And, And I think people have been scared to properly fight back on it. Mm. There's a lot of preoccupation with respectability and this is the first time that the criminal bar has fought as it is right now. I think the last time, about five years ago, it threatened um, it threatened a walkout. It, it, there was a half-day walkout and the government offered something and everyone said, yes, please, and, and that was the end of it. So it is the first time we've been ready to fight back and I think maybe that's why it's got as far as it has because no one's properly fought the government on it for a long time. It also sounds like you've come to a point where if you don't fight back now for, for something reasonable for, for, for the, the, the criminal barrister community, soon you won't have one anymore. I, I was reading that a lot of young younger lawyers now, or the, the young, young barristers, are leaving because they can't deal with the culmination of the stress and then low pay. Yeah. So of the people at the really most junior end, like first first year or two, I think, well, 40% of the most junior criminal barristers are left in one year. Oof. There's kind of cohorts each year and 40% started and just went, 
that's it. I'm not, I'm not staying. Sorry, that's basically as high as it's ever been in terms of people departing. And, and without having the numbers to, to carry on feeding in, mm-hmm. there aren't people to cover the cases. And specifically, uh, if you're talking about defendants in these magistrate courts, so if it's shoplifting and all sort of the lower end of stuff, if, if people don't get good defense there, then their chance of slipping through the cracks or getting wrongly convicted increase, which doesn't lead to better life outcomes for, for anybody uh, sort of on the, on, on the lower end uh, either. Yeah, I think in terms of the magistrate's court, it's good to give like a bit more context there, if, if I can. Um, sure. So the magistrate's courts tend, tend to be the only barristers who are in the magistrate's court, so the more junior barristers, apart from sometimes in the youth court where you can get like a signed, a signed barrister for a case. Uh, the magistrate's court fees for those barristers are really exceptionally low. That's the, that's work that when people are given legal aid, when the government grants legal aid, they grant it just for one litigator. So they grant it for a solicitor. So when barristers do those cases, they're going really as the solicitor's agent because the solicitors have got too many cases and they send a junior barrister instead. The pay for that is really, really low. So if you've got one case any magistrate's court. I think maybe this applies particularly around London and the southeast. There might be different fee structures or arrangements elsewhere, but the written down agreement with the solicitors and barristers between them is that for a first appearance, so any offence of any seriousness legally aided, be it a um, armed robbery or a shoplifting, be there you know five pages in the papers or, or one hundred and fifty. You get paid fifty pounds. Fifty. Five zero. And this is this is to this is really to defend young first time offenders, kids, teenagers. Yeah, exactly. Your your first hearing um, for any offence starts in the magistrates' court. So <clears throat> whether you are you know like a withdrawing drug addict who has been held overnight at the police station because you're found with a bit of heroin um, on you when you were searched, or you're a kid who's been found with a knife. Or, or you've been found with a hundred kilos of cocaine in your in your car. Um, your first hearing is in the magistrates' court. The person who is sent to represent you will be paid fifty pounds. Uh, that fifty pounds is to you know try and get you bail. Well, that's if it's a barrister being sent. That solicitors have their own funding, but the barrister who's being sent is getting paid fifty pounds from the solicitor's pot. That's to try and get you bail. Uh, that's to go through the papers with you, um, take your instructions, advise you whether to plead guilty or not guilty. And that's a really important hearing as well, because that's the hearing where if you plead guilty, you get a third reduction for a guilty plea. The next hearing, you only get a quarter reduction for a guilty plea. So that that's a huge judgment call. And that's potentially a big chunk off you know, if you were going to plead guilty, any sentence you'd get later. Mm-hmm. And they're getting paid £50 for that. Now, just for that hearing, you could be waiting around at court all day. You could be waiting and waiting in the queue to get on and the court's busy and, and, and you might not get on till three o'clock in the afternoon when, you, when you're there for the morning. And, and yeah. yeah, £50 at the end of it. <clears throat> so that's how you get to those figures of, of the most junior barristers having a median income of £12,000 a year. 
that's like, that's that's genuinely um, extraordinary. And just by way of of contrast, let's say uh, I'm a practicing barrister as well of any type of experience, but um, my defendant is not reliant on legal aid. They have the bank of mom and dad, or you know, mom and dad have a big house somewhere in the shires, let's say, and they decide to hire me privately. How much would I earn per hour if I'm just straight up paid by the parents who can afford? Even for private fees in in criminal legal aid, it's nowhere near as comparable to other areas. So, for example, sorry to derail the question, but like by way of context to explain it, if you're doing chancery, so if you're doing kind of trusts and things finance if you're doing finance, yeah, finance stuff you you're never you're not going to start on anything less than a hundred thousand pounds in your first year i think criminal private legal aid sorry criminal private fees because criminal legal aid is so low and everyone does private alongside the legal aid the private fees in criminal law are probably a lot lower than in other areas because if you call you know someone's clerks and say well, they're going to get normally get 40, 50 pounds for a first appearance, and then I'll give them three hundred pounds for a first appearance or four hundred pounds for a first appearance. Someone's going to say yes, yeah. but in terms of what you'd expect for really in, in other areas of law, you know, you'd be expecting an, a, an hourly rate of a couple of hundred pounds an hour. It's not going to hit anywhere near that for for criminal um, private funding even if you know for that 400 pounds and you do get that for like driving cases often like well not often but sometimes but for that you're still doing you know an hour and a half preparation traveling to court for an hour advising for an hour sitting around blah 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 like compared to the private fees the private fees are deflated because legal aid is so low yeah yeah yeah. the other thing that people talk about that, that, that is relevant for private fees well, there's two things I just want to mention. So in the magistrate's court, it's really hard to get legal aid. You have to be earning the kind of easy cutoff for earning, for getting legal aid is is kind of £12,300. So if you're earning more than £12,300, you're probably going to have to pay some kind of contributions to get your legal aid in the magistrate's court. So people paying privately, you know, it might happen sooner than you than you think if you get in trouble you might think oh i'm i'm not earning very much money Uh, i'm only 20 grand a year i should be able to get legal aid you probably can't and then if it's in the crown court there's a much higher threshold but your private fees uh if you win you don't get your private fees back you only get the legal aid equivalent of your private fees back and the difference you have to make up from your own money. So it, it, the full legal aid, government paid legal aid, really is only available to people on sort of benefits level of income, if I can put it that way. In the magistrate's court, in the crown court, I think it's kind of more than like up to 60 grand. I'm not completely sure. But then often people pay contributions towards it. Now, those contributions are often up to 900 pounds a month. So you can you sometimes get people who are on, you know, they earn a they earn £1,200 a month, and maybe more, or they earn like £1,500 a month, and they're paying £900 a month contribution to the legal aid agency. Maybe if yeah, if you win, you get that money back if it's legally aided. But it's, yeah. yeah, you see these if, if you situations. lose, you can and go to prison and also lose everything because you spent all your money on trying to not get convicted, exactly. essentially. 
that's yeah, extraordinary. Exactly. I mean, so so the impact for this, not just on, on the barrister as a profession, but on criminal defendants must be extraordinary uh, over the last 10 years, because if I were the defendant in this, this would, this would terrify me. Yeah, uh, it, it should. It should. There's a kind of work ethic at the criminal bar, which is um, terrifying. And it is not unusual. And I think that's probably why people leave. There's always been a kind of outflux of people leaving about five years in, of people who love it, but are just tired. People just work themselves to death to try and do everything because that's all you can do. And, and there's nothing really quite as motivating as thinking, you know, you know, it's, it's nine o'clock at night. I've been working since six o'clock in the morning, but I, if I don't put this work in, then it's more likely that my client is going to go to prison tomorrow. Like that's, that's really motivating and, and that keeps you going, but that is not sustainable. That's, I mean, that's also, that's, that's sustainable for nobody. I mean, even I imagine for, for the other side of the court. So you mentioned that uh, barristers are also actors as prosecutors, but I imagine for the judges in the profession as well, this sort of endless push, push procession with this massive backlog that there is now, this can't be good for defendants or judges or barristers or prosecutors or, or anybody. Yeah, no, it, 2022 cases are being listed in 2024. And there's a really ridiculous system that no one believes when they first hear it of warn lists. So if, especially if your defendant is on bail, um, their trial will be put into the warn list in the week commencing, I don't know, Monday the 11th of July. Um, I've got a trial right now. I'm not obviously going because I'm on strike, but, but my client's trial for an offence from 2020 is in this warn list. Now, what that means is at 4.30, when the court does their listings, they will tell you, they'll, they'll put up on their court list um, what starts tomorrow. So you've got to be ready to go for that full two weeks because your trial might start any day in those two weeks. It also might not start and it might be moved to a later warn list because a lot of warn list things never get to be heard in that round. So it'll probably go to another warn list. And then when it's not heard in that warn list, it might get its own fixture and it might not even be heard in that fixture where it's fixed for a certain date. So things, people have got to be ready and then it just disappears. And that's, I mean, that's a horrible way to treat anyone, whether that's defendant or whether that's, you know, a, a witness or a victim giving evidence, like that's, it's atrocious. As the barrister, you sort of have to be then constantly ready and have the full case sort of in your mind and be ready to go at any moment. Whereas at the same time, I mean, is it common that you have one case on the one list or can you have like four or five that it sort of train wrecks into each other, essentially? Yeah, so that's that's kind of how the first part of the strike started. So before we were refusing to go to court, uh, it started with something called no returns. So a return is when you cover someone else's work. So it's pretty common for you to prepare a case, do all the written stuff on it, but it goes into a warn list. Now, if it's in a two-week warn list, it's a two to three-day case in a two-week warn list where it may never come in. You can't keep your diary free to in case the case comes in. So you've kind of got to book other things in as well because you don't know when it's going to come in. So often the listing office won't care when you're free. The court office isn't going to care when you're free um, to do it. 
they'll care if police officers who have to come and give evidence aren't free and, and that's a good way to plan it around if you are going to be trying to to guess your warn list and sometimes you can call the court and say do you think it will come in this week maybe maybe not and they might be able to give you a sense of it but you know you can't hold them to it because they're just a staff member in the listing office trying to make some sense out of the chaos yeah. so other yeah. people I mean, will the, jump the, in the staff too in in the listing office has to sort of arrange this herd of delayed cats if you will into a structure that they know doesn't work for anybody either it can't be that can't be a fun job either at this point no absolutely not and i mean right now they're they're they are definitely suffering um and there are people in the courts there are court staff who are balloting to go on strike as well over something called common platform which maybe they're trying to digitalize the files in the magistrates court and things in the Crown Court already digitalised, but they're trying to bring everything onto a new system. And it just takes the court staff so much longer. But yeah, uh, the no returns was people refusing to take on other people's cases. You know, if I had a if if you have a free time in your if you have a free couple of days in your diary, some clerk from someone's chambers would be ringing around saying, "We've got no one to cover this warn list case that has come in. Can anyone else cover it?" And so very often the work of a criminal barrister is getting a case at five o'clock six o'clock the night before preparing the case in entirety and being ready to go the following morning that's extraordinary does it work both ways is it both as as defense and as prosecution can you also be rung the night before saying the crown needs somebody to to to, to prosecute yeah definitely in under 24 hours in 48 hours notice yeah yeah all the time because especially if if you are if you do prosecute and defend you might have a defence trial at that time. Now you've got to weigh up your professional obligations. Every every matter you do, you've got to you've got rules that you have to apply to decide which case you do. And clashes aren't unusual. So if the client's particularly vulnerable, then that weighs in favour of you doing it. You know certain things. So generally, a prosecutor, if they've got a prosecution case and a defence case, they might have a good reason to stick with their defence case, and then someone else has to take on the prosecution case. And I've had that where. Um, I was defending in a, a matter where this prosecutor knew it back to front. He, the solicitors had changed. The client had wasn't like wasn't fit to plead. So everyone's roles were, were a bit different. But the prosecutor was the person who knew the case the best. I was brought in last minute with a change of solicitors. He knew the case the best, but the court didn't have availability on the fixture on the date fixed for trial that they had. So it happened to go off for a month. And he was no longer available. And so someone else was meant to be brought in, but they didn't have people to cover it and they didn't have people to cover it. And it was only that Sunday, I think, where the prosecutor for trial that Monday was told, you know, you're prosecuting this time to get up to speed. And it's not just getting up to speed, right? It's you've got to prepare. The prosecutor has to prepare jury bundles. So exactly the compilation that the juries get. And those can be huge files. Um, they, it's their responsibility to prepare the agreed facts. So you try and narrow the issues where there's agreement. It's the defence, um, you know, it's kind of my responsibility when, when I'm defending to look through their proposed jury bundle and say, not that, not that, not that, because sometimes they'll get the police to do it and they'll, uh, maybe not sneaky, but like, you know, they won't yeah. know what they shouldn't put in. I've got to also kind of go through the... Uh, agreed facts and see if that 
is okay with the instructions that I have from my client. Um, so there's a huge amount of preparation work that has to happen beforehand, and that will be often dealt with really last minute. That's why barristers find they work, you know, criminal barristers are often working at least one day on the weekend, as well as early mornings and late evenings, because otherwise you're just not going to be ready. Even if you're the type of personal voter who is more like, you know, the hang them high, send them all to prison type, this system also doesn't work for them if the prosecutor doesn't have the time to prosecute a case where a defendant may actually have done what is being claimed they they have done. That's so it 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 doesn't work for yeah. for for any for anybody anywhere. This 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 situation as exists. I mean, no wonder you're on strike. But yeah, I think people. The thing is, it, it doesn't make sense. But then people will be up to speed. Like you just have to be. Oh yeah, no. I mean, human brain is big and can press. You can cram a lot of info in. I mean, I do it weekly for this podcast. You do it daily. It's, uh, <laughs> you, know, you win. But uh... yeah, so you basically you have to be ready. But it it's just not. It's just not a way to to live your life, it's, and I think it's not sustainable. Yeah, it's not at all sustainable. And I think one of the things that makes the strike kind of stronger as it goes on is I can finally see the end. I've not got to the end, but I can finally see the end of like the work that I have due. Like I'm finally not working from like really early hours until really late at night. I'm not working on the weekends. Um, and also, when there is a date that isn't a strike day, and so it's been going, so it was first, it was two days, the first two days of the week, then the first three days, and this week, Monday to Thursday is a strike, next week it's all week, and then it's on and off until we win. Um, one week on, one week off. But suddenly, court listing offices accommodate when you're available. So you don't have to have someone else cover a case, get them up to speed, they have to take how much time to get up to speed finally when we're definitely not available things are being yeah people are kind of being more the system is being more considerate to us and it's just a nicer way to work anyway um but yeah the longer it goes on the more people are entrenched in it really Mm, and potentially the more junior people start taking on have time to take on other work in other areas it's extraordinary it needs to take a strike for sort of human conditions to 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 return to this field where i think if anybody who's listening you know if i if i god forbid end up as as the defendant in a criminal proceeding i i i would hope that this would work for me at least the professional side of it that that everybody would have a weekend and some rest and have a chance to prepare for you know what to me might be one of the most important days of my life yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like you, however much time and effort you put in, it's probably better that you've had a good night's sleep on top of preparing your case than just cramming it in and, and, and performing on the day. That's, that's really, yeah, it's really important. You, and you don't want a robot. And it's actually really important that you don't have a robot representing you. When, when you're in the cells and you've uh, got to speak to your barrister, you want someone who is is multi-dimensional or three-dimensional rather than um rather than just a, a work machine uh, the the other part of the strike so there's i explained no returns and i explained kind of the days of action where people aren't going to court and how that goes the new another of the new parts of it is no new instructions so 
as of the 27th of June, no barristers, or at least no barristers who are following the strike, and I, I get a sense that that's most barristers, um, there was a more than 80% vote in favour of uh, escalating strike action in the vote that led to this most recent episode since the 27th of June. So since that point, people haven't been taking any new instructions. So no barristers are accepting the new cases, which means that at some point, you know, after 28 days, you have your first hearing in the magistrate's court. After 28 days, you have your first hearing in the Crown Court. And at some point, there almost sh there shouldn't be any defence barristers in court at all. And it's if the government waits that long, yeah, it's been, it's, it's the third week now, right? So after four weeks, it's going to be chaos. Yeah. Because even if people are working, even if it's not a strike day, no one's going to barrister. And then I'm, I'm assuming, I'd, uh, I don't know the legal rules well enough, but I'm assuming that you are not allowed to put a defendant on trial if there's not a defending barrister, or even if there's no prosecutor, because at some point, because you have that dual role, the, the courts just get deserted. Yeah, basically, the, they shouldn't be putting people on trial without a barrister. So when no return started, um, and, you know, for example, a colleague's case, they just randomly called it in like a week early. They said, we're going to trial next week, and she wasn't available. And she said she wasn't available, and there were two defendants. And the rule the judges were following then is they'll just split the trial, have the trial of one defendant, and they'll do the second defendant another time which often can be pretty good if you're the defendant, um, because if each of you are saying it wasn't me, then, yeah. So that's what happened, and and that trial didn't go ahead, or half the trial went ahead and, and half didn't. So some of it was done. There's been talk of, in some cases, judges telling people to just go ahead. Um, I know there was an article about someone, but I think she'd sacked her barrister and then she couldn't get another one. And they said, well, you're going to trial. I don't think even then, even if she's like a very difficult client and sacking her barrister and whatever, they shouldn't be no. sending someone to trial without representation. So, yeah, I, I, it, it should delay matters. But but the point is not, of course, I mean, no, nobody, you'll know you this. don't want to listen, get to this the, point. Yeah, of course. But. I think everyone's realizing that it's kind of like it's kind of obvious if if like you're a socialist, you're an anarchist, but like without our labor, the system can't function. Yes, like and that's people are realizing that like it just it just can't it just can't function. That's pretty empowering, I think, for, for a lot of people um, to to kind of have that sense of that finally. Very broadly speaking, of course, but what do your your clients and what do defendants think of this situation? Because you also have to go to, to them or somebody has to go to them and say, I'm sorry, you've been waiting for your trial for two years, three years, four years, but we are on strike. And and what has been the response from, from their side? What do the clients think? Um, yeah, basically it's mixed. Yeah. Some people are really supportive and, and you know, so, someone said who wasn't someone, I think we had the RMT come down to one of the the first protest with with their yeah big... i saw the photos that was that looked extraordinary and and you know as a socialist it warms my heart when different unions combine to show solidarity with each other as well yeah but what what the guy from the well what i heard from a friend that, that someone from the rmt said i'll credit to him because he might be right no one 
it's it's partly mixed because one people are understanding and understand the situation they don't want a, an exhausted underpaid barrister but also a lot of the time no one says like oh like you've stopped me from going to prison for 10 years um you've delayed me going to prison for 10 years <laughs> yeah like sometimes people don't don't mind the delay but they also it's stress hanging over their heads it's one thing when you've got a client on bail it's another when you've got a client remanded in custody. Yeah. So if someone's in custody waiting for their trial and their trial doesn't go ahead, that's more time waiting in custody. Sometimes their only chance of getting out is having their trial and being found not guilty. Now, if they know they're going to be found guilty, which if they knew they probably wouldn't be going to trial, they'd be just pleading guilty, then maybe it'd be different. Even then you've got it hanging over your head. But if they get found not guilty... They've just done, you know, what potentially like maybe normally like more like six months, but you know, they might have done like a year in prison waiting to be found not guilty. And everyone's like, oh, well, move on. Sorry. Sorry about that year that you spent in prison. Uh, so it's really like it is really serious. And, and you know, you know, like I, I, I'm not I'm not being flippant about it because like, yeah, like the, these delays hurt everyone and, and um, people yeah often scared to talk about the defendants they, they talk about the victims and like it that's important of course as well um, and the witnesses and people forgetting their accounts or whatever but like if you are waiting in prison and it gets delayed you are going to spend just more time waiting in prison and that's yeah. not a nice place to wait and and these are not decisions any right-minded barrister would take lightly therefore to go on strike and the fact that it had to get to this point i think is really indicative of a, of a system that's that's really coming apart at the seams um i wanted to sort of start to move move towards wrapping this up but first i do want to talk about what the reaction of the government has been so far and whether or not there's been movement on their side i saw an article um that dominic Raab is instructing court clerks to send records of people who are doing no return who are not showing up uh what has been the response so far and, and where do you see the movement there do you see movement there? Yeah. Maybe even the better question. So, um, so yeah, there's the thing with Dominic Robin telling the court clerks to to send the information over. The Lord Chief Justice also made a statement just right at the start or just before the start, saying, basically encouraging the CPS if a defence barrister didn't turn up to ask for wasted costs against that barrister. So to basically say, you know, this has cost us the CPS sending someone this much cost the court this blah 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 like this defense barrister should be reported uh, to their regulator and should have to pay um, costs of everyone else turning up even though the court yeah. would have been told that they weren't coming but decided Re to this is retaliatory anyway. fines people are it's retaliation for going on strike is to threaten you with additional fees and misconduct proceedings yeah, and I think that's had, as you might expect, the opposite effect. Nothing has happened, and and maybe I'm I'm tempting fate by saying that, but their their bark so far has been worse than their bite. Yeah, there's also people responded to it and said, actually, no, having people having previously been advised, you know, we're independent, we're self-employed, we we it's not a strike, it's an action day, and you're each individually taking a day of action. That we have Article Eleven rights you know, to strike, basically, and and those should be protected rights. Uh, in terms of the court clerks, I think also some 
um, a solicitor's firm has is working with the Criminal Bar Association to kind of challenge that legally. I mean, I don't really know what it would achieve anyway. I mean, it does sound like blacklisting to me, but in terms of what it achieves, mm-hmm. like everyone's participating, you've got a list of people who would be in court that day. You probably have that list anyway. If you want a list of people who are participating in the strike, you can just get a list of any criminal barristers who accept legal aid. Like you can't, yeah. like if you want to blacklist people, like you'd have to blacklist everyone and then you'd be in a much worse position than you started off with. And yeah, there's been threats and worries about people being before their regulator that the bar standards board, but there's so few barristers. Again, you don't want to kind of give a threat to your regulator, but it wouldn't be a smart move to stop more criminal barristers from practicing. Like it just wouldn't be very, like it just wouldn't be a good idea. Yeah. yeah, and, and much, much like the the current strikes from from the RMT and the others that are threatened, you can't just bring in agency temp workers to do criminal justice because you need training. You can't, you know, you can't just rock up um, and do that for a day. So it's a fairly sort of irreplaceable cog in the machine. They did try, in fact, to do that. They they the, just before or at the start of no returns. So when people weren't covering each other's work, they made a big database of oh like higher court advocates so the solicitors who are trained to cover it so they they invited everyone to sign up i think probably barristers as well what courts you'd attend blah 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 solicitors some of them felt like they were obliged to um call the number to see if they could get alternative cover but they were like there was no one doing it there was like i don't know i don't know how many but like 10 people doing it um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's already not enough people to cover the work so you you can't like there's no way to kind of go around that by trying to get more people to cover the work because there's not enough people anyway. With all of us working, there were so many delayed trials because there weren't people to cover the work. So it's it's kind of toothless, even even if people are on board with it, which they're not. I mean, I know you maybe can't speak for the strike itself, which is fine and fair, but what what is that you want out of this? What is the outcome that you would find satisfactory in terms of either reduced working hours or money or what is it what is the the demand i mean a lot of it comes down to money because the only way we're going to get more people staying in criminal law is by paying it not even properly just a bit more than what it currently is one of the demands is a is a 25% immediate increase in what's called agfs in the advocates graduated fee scheme in the, in that legal aid scheme immediately because the government have said that they will increase it by 15% for new legal aid orders what that means is yeah maybe if you have something which starts in october and then it's a guilty plea in december then you might have 15% more now frankly 15% isn't going to go very far but realistically no. in terms of the things that are going to um be paid for for kind of a substantial amount of work those won't be trials for another year and a half so that's a that's a pay raise quite a long time from now. So people are demanding it immediately. There was a review called the Bellamy Review. And the government has been back and forth for ages, like a review here, the CBA. Not sure if it's the time to act. It's a favorite trick of all governments. If you don't want to do it, get somebody to write a review, then obstruct a review process. Yeah. And then you're two years down the line and nothing has happened. And the situation that you wanted continues going. Yeah, like even even the review said, you know, we need, I think, 50% immediate increase and then 15% increase mm-hmm. however long. So 
yeah, the government is offering something not very much at all. That's one of the demands. There's a lot, there's more around um, some like, so for example, like um, trials involving like very vulnerable uh, uh, complainants or witnesses, they they do something called, well, they, they do the cross-examination of the trials separately. So, so that, you know, like a, a four-year-old who's whatever, or a 10-year-old who's suffered something quite horrible doesn't have to give evidence in front of everyone. It's yeah. done beforehand, it's recorded, and even the cross-examination is recorded. Um, but that's work that you do a lot ahead and then you don't get paid for it. And then if someone else takes over, they've got to do all that work all over again and you've done all that work, which is the equivalent of you know part of a trial and you don't you don't get paid for it so there's a lot of demands around that yeah i don't i don't see it being solved i don't see the the kind of working hours thing being solved without more people you know well look it, maybe there could be less defendants <laughs> to spread the workload more you just simply need more barristers and no junior junior barrister well not no but a lot of them are leaving because they simply cannot financially or personally handle this system which is from the sounds of it i I wouldn't blame anyone for staying or going in in, under these conditions yeah and i mean the the amount as well the amount that you're asking for that 25 percent like it's not even a restoration of the 30 percent that's being cut like just like the rmt strikes and everyone was going off their nuts about that it was like they were asking for a below inflation pay rise as part of that and I don't think people don't tend to understand that you're not asking for the world; you're just asking for what's fair and straight. I think, like what what we in terms of going further, like I think there should be a push for um, like like written work to be paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there'd be safeguards that if you think if you write a two page document and you say it takes ten hours, they're not going to pay for ten hours of work. You know, the legal aid agency just wouldn't like they they challenge everything you everything you bill for that extra work that you're doing around cases that that could well be funded as well like there's there's no reason not to i mean there are reasons not to the government doesn't want to spend money on it but like <laughs> like it would yeah. be fair it's it's work that you have to do and mm. it, it should it should pay money yeah but it's, it's labor at the end of the day yeah yeah hannah unless you have anything to add i think that's a that's a fairly good uh point to to wrap this up thank you so much for for coming on and, and talking to us and talking to our listeners uh but before i let you go is there anything if our readers feel motivated to help or do something or be supportive in general uh, as as good socialists i want to do is there anything they can do feel free if you want to to come along to the protests feel free to challenge someone if if they're talking about it saying this is stupid feel free to you know talk to them about it yeah uh, i i don't have any this i hope the solicitors will be taking industrial action soon i hope they'll be escalating as well because it'll be very good for us to be working together on this and uh Mm -hmm. be supporting them as well before we started recording you also mentioned the uh, black and green cross which is uh, oh, yeah. support for people caught in protests and uh, we'll put a link to that in the show description if you want to expand on that for a moment yeah green and black cross do brilliant work in a lot of protest cases by supporting the defendants and doing arrestee support and helping out with that and and i always encourage people to support them if they feel like supporting somebody all right 
well and on that note uh, hannah thank you again uh, so much for for coming on thanks very much for having me it's been great cheers